Thank you so much for joining us here at Dorisville Baptist for an incredible time of worship already. So grateful for our worship team leading us um, to the throne of grace today. And this is it. We are on a journey, as you see on the banners on the side walls here, we're a journey from, from Genesis to Revelation in 2012. And we are now at the point where we enter the New Testament. And the next four weeks, we'll be looking at the four uh, gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and looking at four different images or portraits of Jesus Christ and through four different authors, but emphasizing there's one Savior and really there is but one gospel. So I'm very excited about the next four weeks. The video you saw will be our theme video. Jesus Messiah will be our theme song. So you'll be seeing those in the next um, four weeks. And David's working incredibly ways of finding ways to bring it fresh to you, to really implant in your heart just the magnitude and majesty of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse number 13. And we want to look at Matthew's portrait of Jesus Christ. Matthew saw Jesus as Messiah. And we're going to talk about what that means in just a moment. But what's incredible about Matthew is, of course, he walked with Jesus for three years. We have his story recorded in Matthew. He was a tax collector. He was, well, frankly, he was probably the bottom of the pit when it came to sinners. I mean, I mean, you had your prostitutes and all of that. But at the very bottom in Jewish society were people like him, the tax collectors. And one day Jesus just walked up to him at his office, his tax collecting table, and said, follow me. And, and he got up, he left behind all that he had there, and there's a lot of money there. There's a lot of um, prestige, not in the Jewish community, but, but what money will buy. He had prestige and a certain amount of power because money would buy that also. He left all that behind and followed this man named Jesus Christ. And for the next three years, Jesus poured his life into the 12th, really into Matthew also. And then Matthew later, about 60, 65 A.D., wrote his gospel. And you know what's really cool is, is the fact that there are four different portraits of Jesus. It wasn't like they had an authorship party that they sat down at a big table one day and said, okay, we four are going to write the story of Jesus, and so let's make sure we get all our facts right. They were all written at different times after, after Jesus. One guy was a Gentile. Um, one guy interviewed people uh, like Peter to get his take of the gospel. John and, and uh, Matthew largely wrote from their own experiences. And that's incredible because that's just what you'd expect to happen. If it was all sitting down at an authorship table, it would take away from the authenticity of the story of Jesus Christ. But we see these four authors. We see Matthew, a man who radically experienced the amazing grace of God as a Jew, as a Jew, saying, this is Messiah. Now, I want to ask you a question that really is the theme question for today's message. And that is this. If you have followed Jesus, if you have followed Jesus, why? Why did there come a time when you prayed a prayer, made a commitment to Jesus Christ? What was your motivating factor? We find in America that makes it's a very valid question because there's multiple reasons, as we're going to see in the story today, there's multiple reasons of why people initially choose to follow Jesus. Um, Kyle Eidelman has written a book entitled Not a Fan. And Judy said yesterday, she said, you really ought to read the intro to this because I think it will go right along with your message. And it certainly does. And I really won't take a whole lot of time because I, I, I won't spend time preaching. But the bottom line is this. You know, he, he confessed what I've known. He just wrote a book about it. 
is that for 29 years I've been preaching about Jesus. For 29 years, I have tried to convince people that they ought to follow Jesus. That, they're, that they ought to receive Jesus. And to do that, we come with all kinds of gimmicks and all kinds of ways, convincing people that they needed to be a Jesus follower. And in doing that, I'm afraid we missed the boat. Kind of like the guys. You know, Jesus had a huge crowd in front of him. Uh, he, uh, Kyle points out in his book, he had a huge crowd, like 5,000 men, plus women and children. And, you know, they were hungry. And so, you know, he turns to the guys and says, how are we going to feed these people? You know, and Philip said, if we had you know, a couple months wage, there's no way we could feed them. Andrew said, well, here's a boy. He's got five loaves and a couple of fish. But what is that among so many? Jesus prays over the food and feeds the 5,000 men plus women and children and with, with like 12 basketfuls left over. And the people thought that was pretty impressive. I mean, anytime you open up a smorgasbord, you know, an all-you-can-eat meal, people think that's pretty impressive. And so they, they were such fans of Jesus that they decided to spend the night. And they woke up in the morning, and Jesus was gone. He wasn't there. And so they kind of scratched their head and figured that he had got into a boat and gone to the other side. And so they do the same thing. They, they hustle it over to the other side, skipping breakfast. When they find Jesus, they're expecting smorgasbord number two. They're expecting more food, more free food. And here's what Jesus told them. He said, yeah, I, I know you're not following me because of the signs that you've seen. You're just after free bread. You're just, and that's what he says. He said, you're just after free bread. And then he launches into this message. It's incredible because Jesus, when he got a large crowd, didn't think, how can I keep these people coming? He, he didn't sit there and say, now if I, take, if I tickle the ears just right, the movement will continue. When Jesus got a large crowd, he often preached the hardest messages he ever preached. And with these probably 10,000 people wanting lunch, and he says... No free bread today. The only bread you're going to get is meat. That's when he said, I am the bread of life. And then he said some other things were very difficult. We shouldn't be too surprised that later on, the Bible says that a lot of his disciples, a lot of his followers, a lot of his fans didn't follow him anymore. They had followed Jesus for the wrong reason. They had followed Jesus for the bread. So I go back to my question. Why did you follow Jesus? That's what we want to look at in an amazing scripture. When you're talking about Jesus, about Messiah, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, there's only one place you can go. And it just happens to be a very familiar scripture. It certainly happens to be one of my favorite scriptures. And perhaps even one of yours. So we look in the Bible, the Word of God, and we look at Matthew chapter 16, verse number 13 through 23. And here's what the Bible says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now let's just pause there. Um, earlier in the chapter, Jesus had been confronting his critics. I mean, they had been on him like white on rice. And so he withdraws from that and goes to a place that I think is interesting. Because where he goes, okay, in Caesarea Philippi, is a region that's known for idol worship. In fact, the, the deity Pan, they often worship there. In fact, they believe that where Jesus was would have been massive cliffs. And in those cliffs were many, many, many altar sites to this god, this false deity named Pan. But what wasn't there were the critics. And he's pulled his disciples aside for a specific reason. For two years, they followed Jesus. For two years, they've tried to figure out who he is. For two years, they've seen him feed multitudes. They've seen dead raised back to life. They've seen blind men. They've seen him frustrate the scribes and Pharisees. For two years... 
And now it's time to draw a line in the sand. It's now time for them to determine why they are following Jesus. So they come to the, the coast of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples. And the word asked there in the Greek is an imperfect form, which simply means he asked over and over again. Now, we don't know and if, if he had the 12 guys around there, his disciples down there, and he's going, well, tell me, John, what do you think? And Peter, what do you think? And, and well, what are they saying about me? We're not sure if it's that or, or they gave an answer. And he said, okay, what else? What else? But repeatedly, over and over again, he begins asking his disciples, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? So we have a summary of answers that they give. And the first is verse 14. They say, and they said, well, some say that you are John the Baptist. Now, by this time, John the Baptist had been killed, okay, by Herod. He had been beheaded. And so some of the people felt like that, that Jesus was John the Baptist. Reincarnated, And certainly what, what that meant, you know, Jesus was a powerful teacher, but so was John. John was so passionate in his teaching, so, so much of a firebrand in his teaching, and so was Jesus Christ. So, so by observation, some of the people said, you know, he just might be John the Baptist reincarnated, raised from the dead. And then he said, in observation, some of the people said that perhaps he is Elijah. Now, we know from our study a couple of years ago of Elijah, that Elijah is the miracle-working prophet. Um, again, raising people from the dead, just doing incredible, incredible things. And certainly by observation, some people looked and said, you know, this guy might be Elijah. It had been prophesied that Elijah would come again. And, and so it seemed logical from their Old Testament perspective that perhaps Jesus was Elijah because he certainly did so many incredible miracles. And so by observation, they said, well, maybe this is Elijah. And then, and then somebody, they said, said, well, he just might be Jeremiah. Perhaps he's Jeremiah reincarnate. Now, there are two things. And how many of y'all are reading the Bible through with us on, in our plan? Come on, you raise your hands if you are. Good, cool. Are you in Jeremiah? Yeah, somebody said the other day, they said, I'm trapped in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a long preacher. Okay? You think I get long sometimes? Jeremiah was a long preacher. And he preached on and on and on. But if you know anything about Jeremiah, there's two things you learn in Jeremiah's prophecies, two characteristics that might cause people to observe and say, well, he's kind of like Jeremiah. First is this. Jeremiah was kind of like a prophet of doom. I mean, the whole you know, chunk of Jeremiah is about the fact that Jerusalem's going to fall and God's going to judge you and da da da. And, and the people, so people like that. It's like, you know, when I talk about America, how America's down and, and how our politicians don't get fired and go, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, oh, oh. Well, some people kind of really like that prophet of doom stuff. And so, so some of the folks were really fired up and said, you know, he kind of reminds me of Jeremiah. But also, Jeremiah's known as the weeping prophet, he was an emotional prophet. He, he hurt for people and sometimes for himself. And, and they had observed that Jesus also had compassion. That, that he would see a guy with a withered hand. You saw it in the video when Josh was seen that he would straighten out a guy's withered hand. And whether it was on the Sabbath or not simply did not matter because he realized that people were that important to his father. So, so people had observed for various reasons. And, and by the way, and then some people say, well, other, other prophets. And Isaiah was mentioned in one of the commentaries I studied. Because you know, again, Jesus often quoted Isaiah. So, so people assumed that maybe he was Isaiah come back from the dead. 
So whether it was John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or Isaiah or one of the other prophets, that was the word on the street about who Jesus was. And it had, been, it had come from either observation or experience. And here's what I want you to get. I can almost promise you that those opinions were formed um, out of observation, like I said, or out of need or out of desire. That, that those people, and many of them, chose to follow Jesus, now not in the sense of the twelve, but to become a follower of the teacher because of what they'd observed. Perhaps some of them had had a family member healed. And they said, oh, wow, we're going to follow this guy because he's a great healer. And, and some liked his doctrine, the way he, he knocked the old Pharisees out of their saddle. He, they kind of liked that because they, they, the church had rejected, you know, the temple had rejected them. The religious system had rejected them. So, hey, you know, maybe that, we like this guy. We like this guy. And so many of them followed Jesus for various reasons. Some followed him for bread. They followed Jesus for what Jesus could give them. Not unlike our society today. We, and I must will tell you, and I think Brent would agree with me, I'm certain Dave would agree with me, sometimes in our preaching, we have promised anybody in the world to get someone to trust Jesus Christ. I have people come into my office and they would say, my marriage has fallen apart, and my answer actually was, just trust Jesus, implying that if you trust Jesus, He'll make your marriage just fine. Or perhaps, you know, you get the report from cancer. And then, you know, the report is, follow Jesus, trust Jesus. And that implies that everyone gets healed from their cancer. And the problem with that is, is not everyone gets healed from their cancer. And not everyone's marriage gets fixed. But, but it sells good. Now again, I'm not a Joel Osteen foe or, or friend. But one reason why he runs the huge numbers he does at his church is because he preaches a very popular gospel. He wrote the book, Your Best Life Now. And that may not be true. In fact, if you read the Bible, it's not true. It's not true. So, what, why did you follow Jesus? Whether you did it because of this or that or this, there really is one central reason that I want to show you today, and you've got to go back and nail that down, and perhaps some of you make that decision today, why you follow Jesus Christ. So, after that, in verse 15, Jesus continues. He says this, okay? But you. Now notice how emphatic that is. Emphatic in the Greek and it's emphatic in the Holman Christian Standard. But you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Now, the word say there is important. He's not asking them who, who they believe or what they've been taught. He's saying, what will you confess before men that I am? When, when this thing goes public, I mean really public, what words will come out of your mouth and what will you say about me? Okay? Who do you say that I am? Alright? And is Peter, and we assume he spoke for the entire group, okay? But it's Peter who says this, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Now, I have tried so hard to find a way to express what that meant. But, but from every, from early New Testament, really uh, Old Testament, go all the way back to Genesis, where God promised that, that there would come a Savior. Every Jewish, and the nation wouldn't even form then, but when the nation was formed, they were told that there would be a Messiah who would come. 
And he would reign on the throne of David forever. Every young Jewish boy was taught Messiah's coming. Messiah's coming. And in that Messiah would be the hope of all of Israel. Now, in their vision, it was political freedom. freedom. It was was, uh, more than political. It was financial. It was so many things. When Messiah came, things would be different. And when Peter said, you're a Messiah, he's drawing a line in the sand. Now, I'm going to tell you, Peter didn't really have a big picture at all of who all Jesus was. But he knew this. He was the one. He was the anointed one. He was the Son of God. He was the one. And Peter, from that point, no matter why he chose to follow Jesus before, from this point, we know why Peter follows Jesus. Not because of what he does, but because of who he is. I want to tell that truth to you now. Regardless of why in the past you may have followed Jesus, you need to understand something. We should not follow Jesus just because of what He does, but because of who He is. He is Messiah. Now now we can see, we had the privilege of looking back on Calvary's cross. And the word Messiah to us, even though it is a Hebrew term, we use the word Christ, anointed one, is another word. If we were to take that word Messiah and make an acronym for it, I could tell you today, when I say Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, He is the Master of the universe. He is eternal God. He is the Savior of the world, and yet He is sovereign God. He is God incarnate, that is, He is God in the flesh. He is the Anointed One, and He is not only the hope for Israel, brothers and sisters, He is the hope for this world. That is our Messiah. That is Jesus Christ. That is Jesus Christ. This is huge. Peter says, I'm going to follow you because of who you are, and I believe in the Messiah. And I want to encourage you that no matter why you may have initially followed Jesus, or whether you choose to follow Jesus today, follow Him because of who He is. He is God in the flesh. He is the Savior of the world. He who knew no sin, as David said earlier, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, that is the who. Look at this how. How does that happen? How do you come to that conclusion? How did Peter come to that conclusion? It's really important. Peter did not come to that conclusion because of some emotional plea from a supercharged preacher. Peter did not come to that conclusion because even a crisis in his life. He may have come to a crisis of belief, as Henry Blackaby would call it, about who Jesus was. But he came to that conclusion for a very specific reason. Now, here's what it says. In verse 17, Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, or son of John, you are blessed. Now, now, no, now someone says, you know, so they say, so, so God wants me to be happy. Yes, he does. But in this pretext, the word blessed means happiness. Happiness, okay? Peter, you're going to be happy, but not because of what I do for you, but because you understand of who I am. You're going to be happy, not because of what I do for you in this world, but what I'm going to do in your heart. You're going to be happy because of the thing that I'm going to do for you in eternity. And that is you'll have a place with my father in a place called heaven. Peter wasn't particularly happy on this earth. He was crucified, as tradition says, upside down. He was scourged and he was beaten. 
But Peter found a happiness that went beyond the external to the internal. Simon Peter, you, you, you are, Simon, John, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Simon, you did not come to this conclusion on your own. My Father showed you this. It's the same with us. I want to tell you something. With all my heart, I believe John 6.44 where it says this. Jesus speaking says, No one comes to the Father, or comes to me unless the Father draw him. I believe that God draws people to himself. We don't choose the time. We don't choose the circumstances. God, if you believe Jesus, God draws men to himself. Hey, P- hey Simon, Simon Peter, you didn't get this on your own. You didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'll make this line in the sand. I think I'll make this commitment on my own that, that Jesus is the Messiah. No, God showed him. And there needs to come a time in our lives when we understand that we have sinned against a holy God. And that there's nothing we can bring to the table to eradicate that. That the only thing we can do is trust what Jesus has done. Now here's the deal. Here's the deal. So little salvation involves us. I mean, come on. In order for you to be saved, God's got to convict you. Again, Jesus is not clean up on aisle three. He may clean up your mess, but that's not who he is. Solely. He is a great marriage counselor, but that's not who he is only. He is a savior. In order for us to realize we need a savior, we've got to come to the conclusion that we are sinners. And we come to the conclusion by sinners when God convicts us through his Holy Spirit that we have sinned against the Holy God. And when we understand that we have sinned against the Holy God, all right, that he draws us to that conclusion, then our response is, Repentance. Repentance. And again, for illustration purposes, I've not found a better one. Repentance means I'm heading in this direction, away from God, and I turn around from that and choose to walk toward God in a different direction. Now listen, I'm prepared to say to you today that without repentance, there is no salvation. It's not praying a prayer. It's not hoping things get better. It's not starting a new habit or stopping a bad habit. It's not going to church or joining a church. It is coming to the conclusion that you, through God, that you have sinned against holy God and that you need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ and is turning from your former life and choosing to follow Him as the way, the truth, and the life for your life. That's what it means. To be saved. Now, again, preaching the idea that just trust Jesus. Oh, the health and wealth preachers love this. Now, just trust Jesus. You'll never get sick. And everyone gets to drive a Cadillac. Is that true? Come on. It doesn't even sell good. Yet people flock to it. But the truth is, how does it happen? How did Peter come to this conclusion? God showed it to him. God drew him. And I personally believe that God draws men and women. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. I want to tell you something. I'm not sure how long He draws. 
It scares me when people know they're lost and they say five years, two years, wild oats, whatever reason. Man, if God is calling you to become a follower of Jesus Christ, receive forgiveness of sins through His grace, do it today. Don't leave this building because you may not have another opportunity. I'm not so sure we don't sometimes pull the scripture out of context, but, but God in the Old Testament said, my spirit will not always strive with man. You've got to come when God draws you. Not when you think you're ready. So, you're blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now, this is good. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the forces of Hades, or hell, or death will not overpower it. This is so rich. Now, you know the word Peter, and if you don't know, write this down, is the word um, Petros, Petros, which means small rock. So you are Peter, a small rock. And upon this rock, and Jesus uses a different word there, and the word means two things. One, it means bedrock, and the other, it means a large quarry of stones. You are a small rock. And upon this rock, this bedrock, and this large quarry of stones, I'm going to build my church. Let me give you something I think is pretty rich today. It it, it can mean both things. But first, let's just say it means upon this bedrock. Now, there's no way you're going to convince me that God looked at a mortal man named Peter who is so flawed and imperfect, even with his sins forgiven, flawed and imperfect, and said, I'm going to build my entire church on you. There's no way you're going to convince me. And I know the Catholic Church takes this as a papal authority, okay? But there's no way, with the Greek play there, there's no way that Jesus is looking and saying, Peter, upon you, but it all rests on you, Peter. It's all on you. Ain't no way. The Petros, the Petros, excuse me, the Petra, is the truth that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. That's the, that's the Petra. I'm going to build my church on this. I am the Christ. There is no others. All roads do not lead to heaven. There's one way. There's one truth. And His name is Jesus. That's it. But if Petra can mean something else, it can mean a quarry of stones. And it would mean this, that Peter, on people like you, on many rocks, and and Paul uses the illustration of stones, Peter uses the illustration of stones, upon the people like you, who, who understand that I am the Christ, I will build my church. That's possible too. And I love it. God says, Christ says, I will build my church. On people who understand the great truth, the Petra truth. I will build my church not on people, come on now, not on people who seek me for bread, not on people who are looking for a miracle. Now, I'm not going to build my church on people who want Cadillacs. I'm going to build my church on the bedrock truth that I'm Messiah. And with that, I'm going to build my truth on followers of Jesus Christ who know I am the Messiah. Sold out. Sold out. Committed to the truth. 
this halfway easy believism. We create America. God wouldn't build his church on that. Jesus wouldn't build his church on that. He is looking for men and women who understand I follow Jesus because of who he is, not some Santa Claus mythology that if God meets my needs, I'll follow him. If not, I'm out. Don't believe it. And the Bible doesn't teach it. I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against that. There's two things you need to know it's his church. The word church is ecclesia. It means gathering or called out ones. Gathering or called out ones. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. Whose church? Now listen, 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 Dorsville. He is not talking about a building. He's not talking about a denomination. He's not talking about an organization as such we have here. He said, I'm going to build my church. And he owns it. He is, you saw it in the words on the screen. He is the head of the church. My goodness of life. If you had the concept that somehow, because of what you give, or your talents and abilities in this church, that somehow you have the right to own the church, any preacher, any preacher who thinks he has the right to own the church, needs to turn in his papers and go work at Walmart. This thing belongs to God. This thing belongs to God. And it's not a building. It is people. That's why we do the Lord's Supper. We invite other denominations, other people to come. If you know Jesus, you're part of the ecclesia. Come to the table with us. And I tell you what, there's power in that. If we could ever tear down denominational walls. Twelve years ago I preached this to you when I came in view of a call in mid-July. If we ever tear down the denominational walls. I'm talking about gospel preaching churches. If we'll tear down the kingdom mentality, not the kingdom, but our kingdoms, and if we'll tear down denominational walls and pull together, we can see Harrisburg turned upside down for Jesus Christ. We can see Illinois turned upside down. We can see this country turned up inside down. Because when he builds it, now if we build a church, we might do some incredible things. But when he builds the church, hell cannot stand against it. Come on now. Come on. Hell cannot stand. Listen, gates are not offensive weapons. They are defensive. We are not a church on the run unless we're running to the gates of hell. We're going to, we should be brave enough. Dwayne, yes sir, I'm listening. Dwayne, you should be brave enough to charge hell with a water pistol if God tells you to. Come on now. Come on. We just need to be willing to trust Him and know it's His church. And hell's defeated in the power of Christ. How? Because it's His. How? Because God draws us. God draws us. If you're a bread seeker, if you're a member of the Bread Seeker Club, you need to resign your membership and get in the Jesus Club. If you're in the Feel Good Club, you need to resign your membership and get on the Jesus Club. If if you're saying what God can do for the Santa Claus Club, you need to resign your membership and you need to get in the Jesus Club because of who He is. What? What are we supposed to do? I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. 
And whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. God, the keys, represent several things. But I believe one of the things I can accurately say today is one of the keys is authority. But not just authority. Biblical authority. See, the church wants to use authority in ways that God never intended authority to be used. We are to follow this book as our guide. This biblical authority is our power in this world today. The mission we have is, has biblical authority behind it. You always said Matthew chapter 28. All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. Then he says, as if passing the authority, now... Go. And I want you to go. And I want you to make disciples. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then I want you to disciple them and teach them all things. Biblical authority is a fulfillment of what Jesus intended. And what Jesus intended is a ecclesia, a called out group of people whose sole purpose is not individual agendas. It's not members of a country club. It's not feeling good about who we are or what we do. Jesus' biblical authority is you go out there and you tell people who I am and lead them to repentance and faith in me. And then you baptize them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and Father and the Holy Spirit. And then you teach them so they can go out and make people that know Jesus Christ and other people know Jesus Christ. And we win this world to Jesus Christ through biblical authority. Well, Dwayne, what's all this binding and loosening things? It's biblical authority. You remember in Matthew 6.10? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to use the authority we have to loose the power of the heavens, release the power of the kingdom on this earth. I'm telling you. Y'all fired up about this election and where the country's going? I got the answer. J-E-S-U-S. I'm telling listen, listen, listen. Not a fan club, but devoted followers of Jesus Christ who say nothing else matters. Because I follow Jesus because of who He is, not what He can do for me. Wow. Wow. It's incredible. And then He does this. In verse 20 He says, now, now He gave the disciples orders to tell no one that He was the Messiah. What's up with that? The last thing Jesus wanted. Do you remember, at that time, Rome controlled Israel. Judah, uh, Judah and Jerusalem was under Rome authority. The last thing he wanted was word to get out that he was the Messiah and for people to misinterpret what that meant and come and make him king before it was time. It wasn't time yet for the word to get out that he was the Messiah because people would misunderstand. People would take, oh, another bread. Another this. Oh, freedom. He had a little appointment with Calvary first. See, the people of Israel didn't understand, didn't get Isaiah 53. They understood Messiah as the ruler. They didn't know what to do with he was wounded for our transgressions. Even today, the rabbis don't know what to do with Isaiah 53 when they link it with Jesus Christ. 
Because and if, if you don't know Isaiah 53, I don't have time to teach it today. But, but if you would write that down, if you'll go read Isaiah 53, it's the most accurate and beautiful picture in the Old Testament of the suffering Messiah. And he had an appointment. He wasn't ready. Now, now, he's going to be king. Come on, children. Hey, he's going to be king. And listen, every knee will bow. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But He had an appointment with Calvary. He had an appointment back in heaven with His Father. But one day, one day, He's coming back. He's going he's to take those true followers of Jesus back to heaven with Him for a little while. But then He's coming back one more time. He's coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And He's going to reign on this earth and we will reign with Him. We shall reign with Him. Tell you what. You don't want to miss that one, by the way. Let me just tell you, it's kind of like that Constellation Championship. I told Brent, you know, with heaven and hell, you do not want to be the Constellation Champion. Because it's either heaven or hell, baby. And it all depends on what you determine with who Jesus Christ is. And what you do with Him in His sacrificial death. What do we do? Exercise biblical authority in winning this world to Jesus Christ. And lastly, we've got this. Why? Why? Now remember, Peter didn't get it all. If we had Peter here today, Peter, when you made that declaration in Matthew 16, did you fully understand the suffering part? No. Did you fully understand the second coming? No. Did you understand the role that Gentiles and Jews would play together as the people of God? No. He would tell you all that. So, Jesus breaks the news again. Then Jesus began to point out to his disciples, in verse 21, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Be killed and be raised on the third day. Now, I promise you, based on what Peter said here, biblically, scripturally, that was a shock to him. Jesus had mentioned this, but it's kind of like, you know how ladies out of your husbands, you say something that goes right over their head? Well, the guys, the disciples did that too. When Jesus would talk about this, they'd psh, right over their head. Peter didn't let it go over his head this time. Okay? He said, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got an appointment on a cross. And I've got to suffer and bleed and die for the sins of the entire world. So I can be the hope of Israel and the hope of the entire world. I've got to do that. But... On the third day, I'm going to rise again. I, I just guarantee you. Peter stopped listening with, I'm going to die on a cross. I've got to suffer and die. He stopped listening. He totally missed the third day thing. And here's what he says. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, that's rebuking Jesus. Oh, no, Lord. This will never happen to you. Oh, no, Lord. This can, you know why? Watch, watch, watch. This didn't fit Peter's plan. At, at least he loved his, his Messiah and didn't want him to die. At worst, Peter still had the concept of a reigning king of Israel. He didn't understand the dying part. The reigning king of Israel. And if he was going to be the king, who's going to be the prince? Peter, James, John, those guys. They were all going to be the princes. And if Peter says, no, no, Jesus. Ah. Oh. Much like us. No, God, I didn't sign up for Africa. No, God, I didn't sign up for surrender. No, no, God, I just wanted my marriage fixed. 
I just wanted me a job. You know, I didn't have a job. I wanted a job. And so I prayed the prayer. Remember Jesus? You know what Jesus' response was? Listen to this. He turned, Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Now watch, 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 watch. Because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Peter, you're acting like Satan. Satan would do anything in the world to keep Jesus from the cross. And Peter, you're acting like him. You're saying, your will over my will. I mean, I've got got an appointment here to redeem the world. You're saying, no, no, no. That's what Satan would say. You're more concerned about men stuff than God stuff. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, that's exactly what we do as individual believers and as churches. We're more concerned about our comfort zones, more concerned about profitability for us as individual believers than we are the kingdom of God. And I, I, if I was going to tattoo a verse on my arm to remind me a warning, it might be this verse. Get thee behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns. But man's. And that is, can I just be honest with you? And I'm not going on this limb by myself. But the guy sitting here, the purple shirt, and the guy with the black shirt, we wrestle with that as pastors. The biggest battles we have is not against hell, but sometimes it's trying to keep on track with God and not with the people want. I told, I told, I told Dave this week, so, it's so hard as a pastor... You work so hard to keep your job, you end up not doing your job. I'm so worried about pleasing people that sometimes there's no energy left to please the one I'm supposed to be pleasing. And I'm not alone. Any pastor with his soul would be honest and tell you that. And it shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't have to worry about coddling and cuddling. I love you guys. But my goodness. My goodness. Harrisburg is a pocket of darkness. And when we come home at day and we're just flat wore out from the battles of the day and there's no energy left to go tell anyone about Jesus, Satan wins. Satan wins. And it's true with you too. When you go out and you sell and sell yourself out to work, 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 how in the world are you going to have energy to go on visitation? How are you going to have energy to be the daddy or the mama you need to be? How do you have the energy to be the husband or wife you're going to need to be when we work, 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 work? Not for church. Not for the things that matter eternally. Just doing life. 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 It's hugely important, guys. Hugely important why we follow Jesus. And when we finally figure that out, that we guard it with our lives. We'll guard it with our lives. Because that central truth will help us stay on path. Will help us stay on target. We'll see warning signs. When something in the world is pulling away from that, or we pray a prayer and it doesn't get answered the way we want it, and, we, and Satan calls us to doubt God, we've got to come back to this truth. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And I follow you, not for my best life now, not so I'll never get sick, 
Not that I can have Cadillacs. Not that I'm a position of authority in the church. I follow you because of who you are. You are the Christ. Would you bow your heads right there, please? So my question is this this morning. If you have already followed Jesus, why are you following him? If you have already trusted Jesus and are following him, why are you following him? As your pastor, I would like to challenge you to do business with God today and determine that you will be a Christ follower who follows Christ based solely on who he is. Now, thank God for the blessings. God may save a marriage. God may heal people. And he does, he does, he does, he does. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about my reason for following Jesus is because he is Christ. He is king. My Savior. If you've never trusted Christ, I'm trying not to use too, many, too much church language here. But today, when I said there comes a realization that, that you're a sinner, and God pricked your heart right then, and you said to yourself, That's me. I know I'm a sinner. And God used that statement to convict your heart. The response to that conviction is that thing I said repentance. It's saying, okay, God, I've been going this way, and now I want to go this way. And that plays out in your life by asking Jesus to be your uh, Savior, your forgiver of sins, and choosing to follow Him the rest of your life. Perhaps you're here today. My friend Brent will be standing down front in just a moment. We'll have some folks down here, some counselors available, who will be glad to take the Word of God, not some dogma, the Word of God, and tell you exactly how you can be a Christ follower today. What Jesus did for you and how that plays out in your eternal life. And we're here to help you. If you're here today and, and you've, you've drifted, you know that you have drifted far from God. There's junk in your life that you never dreamed would be there. Maybe today's a day of recommitment for you. You may want to make it public. Come down and shake Brent's hand and say, I want to make a recommitment to Jesus Christ. I realize that my life had evolved down to, to following Jesus for all these various reasons or just pretending to follow Jesus. I'm more carnal than I ever thought I'd be. And today you just want to make a commitment to Jesus Christ, a recommitment to Him, rededication of your life, we used to call it. Perhaps God spoke to your heart today. And He's telling you today, this is a place you need to be on the team. You need to be a member of a church that's seeking to win people to the kingdom. And by God's grace, we'll do better at that next year than we did this year. And if you'd like to come and Join our fellowship. We'd like to invite you to come and we'll tell you exactly how we can get that done today. My big thing is this. If you've agreed or disagreed with what was said today, don't leave the same way you came in. Ask God to help you chew on it, think on it, and then commit it to your heart. Father, it's my high privilege today to preach your word. Jesus, you are Messiah. You are Master of the universe. You are eternal God. You are Savior of the world. You are sovereign King. You are incarnate God. You are the anointed one. And you are our hope. Father, I pray to the Holy Spirit that you'll bring people to yourself and to your kingdom. I pray you'll speak to your children today. And let us make the commitment that we are Christ's followers because of who he is. Please have your way 
in this time of invitation. And Jesus, I pray in your precious name. Amen.